We return this morning to what is, as I mentioned last week, an uncomfortable topic for many people. It is the issue or the topic of giving. And I understand as well as anyone that so many people have negative responses anytime they hear a church address the issue of giving, anytime they hear a sermon on the topic. Because they draw an association between such topics and the corruption and the greed that has been manifest in so many churches and so many circles. I understand that. I grieve along with anyone over those many times, knowing that they are the prophecy fulfilled in Scripture when Christ told us that false teachers would come whose God is their belly, whose appetite is for such things. And of course, I'm always concerned that anyone would ever think that we would corrupt the gospel with any sort of base motive like that, or any way uh, dilute the message with, with uh, selfish gain as our forefront ambition. But you can't avoid the topic when you, avoid, when you walk through the Scripture verse by verse. Because the Scripture deals with it so often. And the Scripture deals with it so often because as Jesus pointed out time and time again, there's an unbreakable link between our spiritual interest and our financial interest. It's not a disassociated theme. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And while many Christians have tried to deny that truth, they try to convince themselves that there is no connection between what they do with their material wealth on this earth and what their heart is before God. They try to store up treasure here and think that their heart can still be in heaven. They try to invest the smallest portion of their wealth in God's kingdom but still say that they seek it first and His righteousness, Jesus' words would tell us otherwise. Plain and simple, Jesus points out again and again, a person's spiritual life will be judged, or will be proven, I should say, by His generosity to the Lord. Or in turn, Jesus warned people of the potentially lethal impact on our spiritual lives if we don't have a proper perspective on our material wealth. A potentially lethal impact if we have an improper love of money. He said it this way in Luke 16. He says, No servant can be a slave to two masters, For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot be a slave to God and money. You can't be a slave to two people. It's an absolute impossibility. We're not talking about employers. We're not talking about a a job, we're not talking about an eight-to-five kind of deal, we're not talking about sort of two part-time professions, we're talking about purchased slaves. We're talking about 
masters, being the property of someone. The property of a master master who has singular and absolute control over that slave so that the slave is obligated to do what his master requires. And if someone who is not your master were to come into your life or even come into your place of work and begin to bark out orders as to what you're to do, as though you were their slave when you weren't, how would it make you feel? I mean, many people respond that way even in their current place of employment, right? Feeling like at times they're treated like slaves. Of course, you would resent such a one. You'd be angry. You'd respond by saying, you don't own me. You don't feed me. You don't clothe me. You don't have any obligation over me in that sense. You would resent them trying to assume that kind of control over you. Well, this is exactly what Jesus is saying. You cannot serve two masters because you will hate the one who doesn't really own you. You'll feel no obligation to him. You'll see him as a false owner and a false provider of all of your needs. So that if you've enslaved yourself to wealth, And have come to the place to believe that your material resources are your real provider. You're going to begin to resent the demands of God. You're going to resent His commands. You're going to resent any call that He gives you for sacrifice. Those times when the interest of money conflict with the interest of God. You're going to be frustrated with God making demands on you and on your resources. You're going to be frustrated that He is impeding your pursuits of wealth with His calls for generosity, for service, for sacrifice, for giving. But if you believe that your real master is God, if you believe that He is your real provider, then you're going to resent the, the lure to materialism. You're going to resist it. You're going to resist it. You resent the one who's coming in as a false master trying to make claims over you. This is, in fact, the way people responded whenever Jesus taught this very thing there in Luke 16. There were some who were sitting by the Pharisees, we're told. And as soon as he began to say these things, they became angry with him they resented him they felt antagonism you know because once you begin to enslave yourself to one master Jesus says you will begin to hate the conflicting demands of another if you're going to serve God you hear things like that and you begin to you begin to think again and again, wow, I need to recommit myself to my true master. I need to recommit myself to my true provider. I need to take hold again of the love I have for God. Take hold again of the one who gave me everything. 
Instead of resenting God's word, you fear materialism. Instead of resenting his calls for sacrifice, you delight to do his will. Well, this is kind of the backdrop that we need as we come back to 1 Corinthians 16 today because Paul is calling on us as he's calling on the Corinthians to serve our master. And our master, he hopes and he believes, is not mammon. It's not materialism. We began to look at this chapter, you remember last week in chapter 16, the final chapter of the book, the first four verses, when Paul is essentially responding to a question that had been posed to him in a letter by the Corinthians, it dealt with an offering for the church in Jerusalem. They had, that church in Jerusalem, I should say, had invested so much in the first two decades of the church, the first two decades of Christianity, they had invested so much in discipling so many believers that now they found themselves without resources. They found themselves facing times of difficulty. And Paul responded to this by collecting an offering from all the Gentile churches where he had ministered who had received so much from that investment by the Jerusalem believers. And in the course of giving them instructions for offering, we have been noting particularly here in verse verses 1 through 4 of chapter 16, five characteristics of what ought to define our giving, our attitude towards giving. Five features, as we said last week, of the kind of giving that God desires or the kind of gifts that God desires. First of all, we mentioned last week that God wants our gifts to be purposeful. That is simply to say as Paul says here in verse 1, that we ought to prioritize giving for the saints. We may occasionally give to other organizations, to other things, but as Paul says, we must always give a priority to those who are of the household of the faith. That is to say, our priority should and must always be giving to and through the church. This was a need, or there, there was a need in the Jerusalem church that had been triggered by their work of taking in so many believers to disciple. And so Paul understood that this was both a gift of relief, but also an investment in a ministry that had produced bountiful spiritual benefits for so many people, including the Corinthians. And he wanted them now to make an investment in return to the ministry that had benefited them so much. So our giving needs to be purposeful with these eternal benefits, these gospel-centered benefits in mind. We mention also it needs to be habitual. This is what Paul says there in verse 2 when he speaks about not simply taking the offering when he arrives, not just simply sort of holding your money until that point, but he wants them to give regularly. He says on the first day of every week, he wants it to be a part of their regular worship experience, their regular worship service. They need to be giving regularly or 
habitually. Well, today we come to a third characteristic of the kind of gift or the kind of gifts that God desires. We add to these first two the purposeful, the habitual, also the personal. The personal. And this is simply to say it is the responsibility of every believer. Or as Paul says there in verse 2, each of you is to do this. It's an all-inclusive phrase. No Christian is excused. No believer is accepted. We all are stewards of whatever the Lord has given to us, no matter how great or how small. And so Paul says, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. You're to do this, he says, as he may prosper. When he says that, he's not suggesting that it's only the prosperous who are to give. He's not suggesting that we only do this when we consider ourselves prosperous. He's not saying that we only do this when we have abundance. We know that by Paul's other teaching in other places throughout Scripture, but also by the teaching of our Savior, who when talking about the issue of giving, says there in Luke 16 also, he says, He who's faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in very little is unrighteous also in much. We could paraphrase all that teaching that comes from Christ's teaching on giving. We could paraphrase that this way. Circumstances do not determine faithfulness. Circumstances do not determine faithfulness. Character is what determines faithfulness. And Jesus is saying that the way we either give or do not give demonstrates not your circumstances. It demonstrates your character. It demonstrates your faithfulness. People may say, well, I'd give more if I had more. Jesus' answer is simply, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Because it's not an issue of how much you have. It's an issue of spiritual character. And character doesn't change no matter how much you have. He who's faithful in a very little thing. That's what it says, literally. Strong language. If you're unrighteous in a very little thing, if you're unfaithful in a very little thing, if you're sinful with the little bit that the Lord has given you, if you're indulgent, if you're greedy, if whatever it might be, you will be sinful with more because that is what is in your heart. It's never about circumstances. It's always about your view of heaven and your view of earth. It's never about your circumstances. It's always about your view of yourself and of the Lord. It's all about a perspective that has captured your heart. As a matter of fact, statistics prove this out. Show that the more people give, in fact, statistically speaking, 
excuse me, the more people gain, the more people uh, receive, the more people earn, statistically speaking, the less they give as a percentage of their income. When they conceivably should have more at their disposal, they should require less of their income to survive. In reality, people give less and less. So giving isn't just an issue for when you get out of debt or when you pay off the car or when you get the kids out of the house or whatever circumstances that you might use. It's not just for when you get your next vacation taken care of or any of those things. It is a personal responsibility for everyone. And so Paul says each one of us is to do this on a regular, on a habitual basis. Fourthly, we could add this principle that it needs to be proportional. It needs to be proportional. That while it is a responsibility for each one of us, the thing, the criteria that Paul gives us to help us to know how much we are to give is simply at the end of verse 2, As he may prosper. He does not mention anything with any specific percentage of your income. It's contrary to popular teaching, I realize, that in many circles people would say that a believer should give a tithe, a tenth, of their income, and churches engage in debates about even whether or not this is 10% before your taxes or after your taxes or how that's to be played out, all kinds of discussions and debates that seemingly have no answers, and they have no answers because it's not biblical, because the Bible doesn't call for it. Listen, the Bible teaches the, the system of tithing under an old covenant or under the Old Testament law, but it wasn't just one tithe that you're supposed to give. In the book of Leviticus, it teaches in chapter 26 that you're to give a Levitical tithe. That is to say that you're to bring a tenth of everything that you receive. In those days, it was a tenth of your crops, a tenth of your produce, You are to bring a tenth of everything you receive and give it in total to the Levites. Now, the reason that they did this is because the Levites were the tribe who didn't receive an inheritance of land. When God sent Israel into the land, uh, the promised land, the land of Palestine, he divvied up all of the property, all of the land among all the tribes and they received their portions so that they can farm it and they can work it and they can gain their produce from it. But he didn't give land to the Levites. They weren't to live off of the work of the land. They were to live off the generosity of the people. And so you came and you gave a tenth of what you received to the Levites. And this was the Levitical tithe. But the book of Deuteronomy speaks about a second tithe that some people call the festival tithe. And this wasn't a tithe that was given directly to the Levites. As a matter of fact, you were to carry it with you to the city of Jerusalem when you went to one of the festivals. 
a Passover festival or something like that, you were to carry this up and you were to actually eat a portion of it yourself. This wasn't something that went to them. This was something that went to the celebration of the feast. And then what was remaining and what was left over was then dedicated to the temple. Because the temple was an enormously complex organization. It was a huge operation that took place continually from sunup to sundown with Levites and priests coming from all over the country taking turns in a rotation serving there. And that created a huge logistical burden, a huge financial burden, animals being sacrificed all the time in the name of Israel. And so you gave one-tenth to the Levites. You gave another tenth to the, to the temple and, and a portion of it to your own celebration. But then there was even a third tithe, a third uh, uh, tenth of your income that was to be given every three years. This is also spoken about in Leviticus 26. Every three years, you were to give an additional 10% of your income that year so that you could support those who are needy. Some people just simply call this the benevolence tithe or the tithe of the poor. It didn't go to the Levites and it didn't go to the temple. It went to those within the nation of Israel who were indigent, as we would say. So in a sense, it was the social security program of Israel. It provided for the widows and the orphans, or at least it was designed to do so. Now, if you're even halfway a mathematician, you can add all that up and realize that this is quite a hefty load on each Israelite. 10% to the Levites, 10% to the festivals, and then every three years, 10% to those who were indigent. 23 and a third percent of your income was required in all of these fashions. This was the biblical teaching on tithe, or this is the biblical teaching on tithe. Unfortunately, it's not the biblical teaching today. When you hear people speak about a tithe, no one is brash enough or bold enough to teach everything the Scripture says about it. No one is bold enough to suggest that people of all manner and walk of life ought to be giving this 23 and a third percent of their income. They don't do it because they realize that in the modern society we live in, there are other obligations that we're already paying, that we already have a taxation system that burdens our people. We already pay into a social security system that's designed by our government to care for those who are indigent and those who are needy. We understand that so many of the obligations of that of that tithing system are not even operational in the sense that we don't serve a temple, we don't have a Levitical priesthood necessarily today, and we don't have that obligation to a tithe for the poor. But this is what a lot of people miss, is that over and above that 23 and a third percent that was required of Israel, that there were a number of other offerings 
that were prescribed and regularly given by the Israelites. I mean, just for example, there was the law that says that you don't glean the corners of your fields. That is to say, whenever you're out there harvesting your crops, you were always to leave, in addition to the tithe for the poor, you were always to leave a corner of your crops so that the poor could come along even in the harvest season and pick up the remains of what was in the corners of your fields. This was yet another way of people showing generosity and kindness to the poor. There were uh, free will offerings. There were all sorts of grain offerings. There were all kinds of things that people did over and above this regular system of giving to the religious structure of the day. And so we recognize, and we're not surprised, I might say, that when you come into the New Testament, none of those tithes are ever prescribed for New Testament believers. You won't find a single place in Scripture where you find a tithe specifically commanded for anyone in the New Testament era, even though there are plenty of places that talk about giving. As we said, there were earlier a number of places in Christ's teaching, a number of places in Paul's teaching, two whole chapters in 2 Corinthians dedicated to the subject. And never once does Paul default to a prescription for you to give a percentage of your income. You say, well, then how much am I supposed to give? Well, Paul tells you right here. You're to give as you may prosper, or as you prosper. You are, in other words, to spend time reflecting in your heart and asking the Lord, how have you blessed me? How have you provided for me? How have you given to me generously? And it should become obvious that an ungrateful heart will be an ungiving heart. It should become obvious that a discontent heart will be an ungiving heart. It should become obvious on the flip side that a truly thankful heart will recognize indeed how much they've been blessed and will want to respond in turn. It should be recognized that a content heart will want to reflect on how the Lord has given to them and will want to give in return. In fact, let me show you this. Just if you'll turn with me over to 2 Corinthians, I'll show it to you in another passage. Again, extensive discussion in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. The whole chapters, those two chapters, dealing with the subject of giving, and yet Paul never prescribes anywhere in there anything like, A tithe. But when you come near the end of the discussion, this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9 and in verse 9. He says that a person is uh, a person is to give, excuse me, I'm sorry, in verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, as you prosper. He says in 2 Corinthians 9, as you've decided in your heart. Because that's what it's all about. This is where it all comes from. It all comes from your heart. It all comes from your reflection on God's goodness and what you think about God's goodness in your life. And just to clarify that, Paul adds two explanatory phrases. He says, first of all, you're not to do it reluctantly or under compulsion. That is to say, you shouldn't have someone browbeating you or manipulating you or coercing you into doing this. Someone shouldn't be compelling you so that you are giving in order to to please them or in some way uh, appease them. God wants it to be something you choose, not what someone else chooses. Because He wants it to be something that reflects your heart. And He he even expands on that, clarifies that, with a second phrase, emphasizing that we have to understand God loves a cheerful giver. So you give with joy because you understand the blessings that the Lord has given to you. You understand the principles that Paul pointed out in verse 6, that whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And so you give joyfully because you understand that your master is not mammon. Your master is God. And you are enslaved to Him. In verse 10, Paul's unambiguous about all of this. He says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Paul's saying God will work in you in two ways as you respond cheerfully, as you respond proportionally, as you respond gratefully, as you respond with contentment and generosity. He will, first of all, multiply your seed. If you are faithful with little, Jesus says, you will be entrusted with much. And secondly... It will increase your harvest of righteousness. That is to say, you will be stretched, you will be pressed as you sacrifice, as you give up a vacation or a new car or a new project around the house or a new gadget or whatever it might be. As you give up those kinds of things because you want to offer something back to the Lord because you've searched your heart, you've realized how you've prospered, and you want to show something in worship back to God, and you, so you increase what you give. He says this will expand or stretch your righteousness. You will grow in your faith and you will grow in your understanding of Christ and of the gospel through all of this. A cheerful, a joyful giver will understand all of these things. In fact, flip back to chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians because Paul is saying all of this in light of a group of joyful and cheerful givers 
that he has spent a great deal of time discussing. He says in verse 1 of chapter 8, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. You see, all the elements are there. Here's a group of people, and they're Their generosity wasn't determined by their circumstances. It was determined by their character. And what their character was, was a heart that realized the grace that they had received. And earnestly wanted to respond in favor to the Lord. And so it was not their circumstances that led to their generosity, but what? Their joy. It was their joy. And what Paul is saying here is the same thing he says in 2 Corinthians. It's the same thing that Jesus teaches in Luke and in all the rest of his parables. He's teaching the very same thing. Is that what you give is not in response to some external uh, percentage that has been compulsorily put upon you. What you give is a response to the joy that you have in your heart to the Lord. What you give is a direct reflection on how you think the Lord has prospered you. And if you think that the Lord hasn't given you enough, if you think that somehow God owes you more, if you think that somehow you deserve more, then you're not going to give generously. But on the other hand, if you think that God has super abundantly given to you, if you think that God has oversupplied beyond what you could ask or imagine, if you're truly grateful for what God has done, you're going to respond with joy, Paul says. All this takes us back then to 1 Corinthians Corinthians chapter 16. This is what Paul means when he says, you give as you may prosper. You give as you may prosper. We didn't read it in 2 Corinthians 8, but Paul says, if the readiness is there for giving, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. Or another way to say that is, it is acceptable according to what you have, not according to what others have your 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 gauge your determining factor is not what everyone else is giving your determining factor isn't all the people around you and it isn't trying to give in order to keep up with anyone and it's not giving because you've already or I should say it's not withholding because you've already outgiven everyone else. This is, in fact, Paul's concern with the Corinthians when he wrote 2 Corinthians. 
He's telling them in chapter 8, particularly as you come down to verse 14, that they were recipients of abundance. And so therefore, they ought to respond with abundance. And they ought to be measuring themselves, not according to the Macedonians, but they ought to be measuring themselves according to what God had done for them. This is the temptation, I'm sure, on the part of some people. They give a big, generous gift, and they know or they perceive that it might be more than most everyone else in the church, and they pat themselves on the back because their standard is what other people have given. And Paul's saying, that's not your standard. It's not according, I should say, it's according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. It's according to your circumstances, not according to what are not your circumstances. It's not according to what others have. Paul says, you give as you may prosper. I think in very practical terms, that ought to mean that every time the Lord brings a blessing into your life, every time the Lord brings a a raise into your salary, every time the Lord brings a a, a windfall, every time the Lord brings a, a, a gift, every time the Lord brings a bonus or whatever it might be, every time you prosper, Every time you see another, another bountiful blessing of the Lord, it ought to be causing you to come back and take stock and examine in your heart and find out whether or not you really believe that your master is God and not mammon. Paige Patterson says, the amount to be placed in our treasury, speaking of the treasury of the church, is not specified. Rather, it is assumed that the prosperity that God would give would be the guide. Clearly, the apostle desired everyone to participate in the offering, and he expected those who experienced the greatest material prosperity to participate with the greatest extent of sacrifice. Or as George Mueller says, God judges us Not by what we give, but by what we keep. No one can determine what you ought to give. No one ought to. It's not to be under compulsion. It's not to be reluctantly. What what you've got to do is not look for some percentage that will satisfy those around you or some percentage that will mollify your conscience. What you've got to do is you've got to ask yourself again, have I been blessed? Have I been blessed by the Lord? And is He my Master? Well, one more important principle that we gather from this passage along with being purposeful and habitual and personal and along with being proportional. It needs to be responsible. It needs to be responsible. That is to say, the Bible never advocates blind giving. We are to assure that what we give to goes into the hands of trustworthy stewards. Those who give to the Lord's work, in other words, have a right to expect that those gifts are used wisely and legitimately. 
And this is Paul's instruction to the Corinthian church at this point. He says in verse 3, When I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Paul had made a steadfast and determined uh, 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 choice in his ministry that he would not be uh, in any way opened up to accusation when it came to money. And so in many cases, he didn't receive any income. He was essentially a lay minister in many occasions. And yet, what he's saying here is that even when he receives a gift for other people, he will not even handle it on his own. But he understands and he fully endorses the principle of an accredited group of people to accompany this, mo- this money. This is uh, reminiscent, by the way, of Acts chapter 6, when the apostles determined that the logistics of the church were too much for them and they wanted someone to handle all of these resources. They called the church to appoint for them seven men who could handle the responsibilities of distributing funds And in that call, they never mentioned any kind of business acumen or any kind of accounting background or any of that. What they wanted were men of integrity, moral and spiritual superiority, filled with the Holy Holy Spirit and filled with wisdom. And so Paul says, Similarly here, that the church was to choose a trustworthy delegation who could be sent along with the money to Jerusalem, and they would assure that the money made it safely to where it was designated. All of this, of course, would accomplish two purposes. In one hand, very pragmatically, it would keep the money safe, because in those days, transporting a large sum of money on the Roman roads would have been very dangerous, as you might imagine. And it would have had to have been a very large sum of money uh, because it was going to support a church that was now in the thousands in Jerusalem. And by the way, there was no paper money in these days. It was all metal. It was all coins. It would have been a difficult, arduous, dangerous journey And so it would have been placed in the hands of a number of men who could have ensured its safety in that regard. But more importantly, it would have placed above suspicion any of those who were handling the money. The integrity of these men would have been confirmed because it would have always been in the custody, as Paul says, of multiple people. Any ministry then in whom you are trusting your resources to ought to have these kinds of principles of safety, ensuring the integrity of the funds so that you can have confidence as you give. This in the local church ought to always be the case and the standard, this even outside of the church when you're giving to other Christian organizations and other Christian causes. There should be some level of expectation on your part that there's some clear statement and some defined process of accountability before you would give. 
I've been a part of churches and I've been a part of individual efforts on my own part of giving to people who've disappointed. People who we gave to and after a period of time we discovered that the money was being was being unfaithfully used. In some cases squandered, in some cases maliciously abused. Every time it just brings back the sobering reminder of the responsibility that we have, of the limited resources at our disposal to carry out the, the mission that the Lord has given to us. And Paul understood this. And so he is calling on them that as they prepare this offering, that they also prepare men, they also prepare people who would be validated, or he says accredited, accredited by a letter, an official, a very official stamp of approval, an appointment by the church, and recognition by the congregation. It wasn't some haphazard, last-minute task thrown at any warm body standing around. It would have been a careful selection process to ensure that the money was given responsibly and faithfully and truly to its final cause. These are the things that are well, not only common sense, these are the things that are commonly taught throughout Scripture. These are the things that reflect a faithful giver. These are the things that characterize the kind of gifts that God desires. They're purposeful, they're habitual, they're personal, they're proportional, and they're responsible. These are wise, these are worshipful, and they're a reflection of our true Master. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song when Darby comes to lead us. Father, we're grateful this morning for another reminder of how we need to reflect on where our heart truly lies on how we cannot serve two masters. I pray, Father, that we would think today about how we've received and how you've blessed and how we've prospered and where that has come from. I pray that we would do it, Lord, because your glory demands it. Because our hearts need to be completely yours. Because we don't want to be entrapped and enslaved to such an abusive master as materialism. Lord, we want to do these things because we want to worship You. We want to do these things because we have received so much. And we want to be faithful in little or in much, however You have prospered us. Lead us and help us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.